It's the great Christian dilemma. We want our children and our grandchildren to know Jesus the way we do. We've been so impacted, so changed, so transformed by the love of Jesus, and we desire more than anything to pass on the baton of faith to the next generation. Sadly, we don't always do it well. In fact, sometimes we do more harm than good. I've heard horror stories, and so have you. 16-year-olds who were physically dragged to church by their mom and dad. Families so bound by the law that the moment the child goes off to college, it's as if he or she was shot out of a cannon and propelled unaware and unprepared into a world of sin and debauchery. How do we pass on the baton of faith to the next generation? It starts by realizing that faith isn't absorbed by osmosis. You don't become a Christian just because you were raised in a Christian home. You're not a Christian simply because your parents are Christians. And you're not a Christian just because you go to church any more than you are in shape just because you have a membership to the YMCA. It also helps to realize the course that faith runs through the generations of a family. Maybe you'll be able to find yourself somewhere here. Let's start with a positive example from the pages of Scripture. We'll look in 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, where it says to Timothy, it's Paul writing this, My dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembrance of you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy. Verse 5, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned or the genuine or the sincere faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Lois was Timothy's grandma. She was a devout Christian. Eunice was Lois's daughter and Timothy's mom. She was a true believer too. And Paul was convinced genuine faith resided in the heart of Timothy. The next challenge for Timothy would be to pass the baton of faith to the next generation. That would be four deep as far as generations go. So how did they successfully pass the baton of faith? If we read further, we would see that they taught the Hebrew Scriptures to Timothy while he was very young. And perhaps most important, Timothy's mother and grandmother made sure that Timothy knew God through the Scriptures. The instruction these two women gave Timothy provided him with the foundation of Bible knowledge that Paul was able to build upon later. Paul, learned, Paul had learned under the 
tutelage of Gamaliel, a great Jewish teacher. Timothy gleaned from Paul secondhand from Gamaliel. And then Timothy was entrusted with the responsibility of training others. And so the baton of faith is passed on down through the generations, sometimes four deep. As I get older, I'm ever conscious of what happens after me. I'm keenly aware of the fact that I will not be the pastor here forever. I believe every pastor, I believe every pastor should approach ministry as though they are the interim pastor. In other words, there will be a day when I pass on the baton to another. That plays into my thinking and the decisions that we make. Do we want to pass on a church that is outdated, dilapidated, and aging? Or do we want to continue to impact the generations? Do we want to, attr- uh, do we want to attract young adults and young families? Do we want to be dying or vibrant? Should we let our facilities erode or invest in upkeep? The answer is determined by the culture we create and who we endeavor to minister to. We can't just minister to who we have. We have to minister to who we want. It's all reflected in our investment into ministries like MOPs, Mothers of Preschoolers. It's reflected in our investment into children's ministry and youth ministry. It shows in our style of worship, the selection of the music, and even the volume that it's played at. We know that nothing establishes our culture like our music. And it plays into our decision to fix the parking lot and update the bathrooms. We are eminently concerned and occupied with what we leave for the next generation. We must appeal to young people. It earns us the opportunity to teach the unadulterated Word of God. We do the things that help people here, and then we can help people here. You see what I did there? Lois and Eunice remind us that we should not underestimate or undervalue the spiritual influence that senior saints have on the church in the process of reaching young people. We have amazing senior saints here at Central Assembly. Let me say that again. We have amazing senior saints here at Central Assembly. You allow us to minister to a younger generation. You have willingly set aside your preferences like previous generations did for you. Think about it. Many of us got saved in the 70s and 80s. It was the era of the charismatic renewal and the Jesus people and a host of other movements that were embraced by the older generation, though they were uncomfortable at times, and though it threatened to rock the boat, move the status quo, and upset the proverbial apple cart. 
I remember a beautiful senior saint named Lenora Haas. Her and I were having a conversation. This is back in the 1980s. When I served as a worship leader, long before I ever dreamed of being a pastor, it was the era of the choruses, some of you remember. What a mighty God we serve, and as the deer panteth for the water. And Lenora shared with me that day how she didn't like the choruses. She didn't like the new choruses. But she went on to say something that has settled into my heart as I've grown older. She said she understood that we sang the choruses to reach the next generation. She was willing to embrace something outside of her comfort zone for the sake of passing the baton of faith to the next generation. She showed remarkable maturity and an amazing desire and willingness to think big picture. Now another generation has passed. We still have amazing, wonderful, veteran believers. I love the mentor moms at MOPS. That's a, that's a great concept to connect the generations. And my daughter Gloria is thrilled that Marlon, Marlon Wilson, attends the connect group that she attends at Dave and Chelsea Hammersborgs. And Marlon's got a few years under his belt. And the generations both benefit from the interaction. We're wise to remember. Hear me now, church. We're wise to remember that the ultimate goal is not only to be saved, but to pass the baton of faith to the next generation. So let's look at what the generations of faith often look like. We'll go four deep. The first generation experiences faith. The first generation has a radical encounter with Jesus. It transforms the life of the individual and the family. Their lifestyle is turned upside down. Addictions and bondages are broken and new traditions are established. Now they go to church. They tithe, they pray, they study the Bible. Their way of life was dramatically altered by the encounter they had with Jesus. They actually experience faith. The second generation inherits faith. The second generation is born into a Christian home. The kids are raised in a home where everything is about church and everything is about faith from the very beginning. They're absorbed into the routine of church and prayer and Bible study and the rest. And as the children grow, they still have an affinity and affection for the things of God, but the level of passion has diminished considerably. For the third generation, faith becomes a convenience. The third generation has not turned its back on faith, but it does begin to see faith as significantly less significant. They begin to see faith as a, as a convenience. Faith is a tool in the toolbox. 
It's there when you need it, like when you get married or when you go through a crisis. For the third generation, faith is not part of everyday life. It's more of an insurance policy. You tap into it during times of calamity. It's a convenience. For the fourth generation, faith is a nuisance. If we fail to pass on the experience of faith, by the fourth generation, faith is little more than a nuisance. To the fourth generation, faith is a bother and a burden. This is the natural course of Christianity if we only pass on the label. It's nothing new. Joshua from the Old Testament was a man chosen of God to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. He was a mighty man of faith. He was a dynamic leader. By every measure, by every account, he was successful. They witnessed miracles and they experienced great things. But then according to Judges 2.10, all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. In other words, they died. And there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor the works which he had done for Israel. Joshua and his generation did great things. They accomplished much for the glory of God. They, they achieved and attained great victories for the nation of Israel. But they somehow dropped the baton of faith as they attempted to pass it from one generation to the next. I don't want that to be said of us. They had defeated the Amalekites. They crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. They saw the walls of Jordan crumble before them as they shouted and blew their trumpets. And they even saw the sun stand still. And yet, somehow, the next generation was lost. Whatever happened or didn't happen, it had a crippling effect on the next generation. Whatever the reasons may have been, some, someone somewhere dropped the baton of faith and a great big God became so small in the eyes of his people that an entire generation could no longer see him. So the question becomes, how do we effectively pass the baton of faith to the next generation? I have four thoughts for you this morning. Number one, make sure our faith is more than emotional. It must be rational, coherent, and sustainable. There must be an intellectual component to our faith. It doesn't mean the emotion is bad or wrong. I'm as emotional as the next guy. It just can't be all there is. Emotion, you see, doesn't always transfer. Ever watch a movie with your spouse and you're, you're crying? your husband and wife seems unmoved, emotion can't be the driver. Emotion doesn't always transfer well. Good sense does transfer. Believers should not only feel, they should think. Number two, make sure we convey the why and not just the what. So number one, make sure our faith is more than emotional. 
Number two, make sure we convey the why and not just the what. 1 Peter 3.15 reminds us that we must be able to defend our faith. It says, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks of you the reason for the hope that is in you. When we can see the why, then we have the proper incentive to live the what. If the answer from a parent is always because I said so, a child can build resentment. They can't see the why. And if the answer, if the faith answer is always because the Bible says so, we will be poorly equipped to defend our faith to the point, now here's why this is important, we will be poorly equipped to defend our faith to the point that we endeavor to live under the radar in the hopes that no one asks. Now the beauty of it is, Christianity can stand up to the scrutiny. Christianity has thrived for over 2,000 years, despite nations and kingdoms and philosophies warring against it. I don't expect that it's going to crumble around any question that you or I might have. Instead of the Bible says so, maybe parents and maybe and their children and, and grandparents and grandchildren can go on great learning excursions as they explore answers to life's difficult questions. Perhaps learning can become an adventure enjoyed instead of an insecurity that we hide from. We need to know the why and not just the what. In order to successfully pass on the baton of faith, number three, we must make known all three persons of the Trinity. I tell you, I'm, I'm falling in love all over again with the Holy Ghost. I'm falling in love all over again with the Holy Spirit. Many people grow up with a limited and distorted perception of who God is. For most, it's, it's God the Father. They learn of an excessively stern and harsh aspect of God's personhood. It's often conveyed through the rules and regulations of religion or perhaps a harsh parent. It's taught from the pages of the Old Testament and represented by punishment, rebuke, and reprimand. And young people struggle to see how it all plays into real life, real world, and real time. Some people get to know Jesus. But he's often misportrayed as an enabler. He came to rescue us. He died for our sins. He sacrificed. He gave. He forgives us. He gets us where we need to go with, with nothing or at least very little required on our part. For many, Jesus is just a get-out-of-jail-free card. The Holy Spirit is the one we often neglect. And that's a tragedy. Because the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, is the revealer of truth. John 16, 13 says, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. It's the Holy Spirit who enables us 
to experience God. The Bible says our spirit bears witness with His spirit. The Holy Spirit is the aspect of God necessary for us to correspond with God. He's the one who hovers over the face of the waters. He's the one active in the world today. God is on the throne. Jesus sits on his right hand, ever living to make intercession for us. But it's the Holy Spirit who moves in the heart and the mind of men. It's the Spirit of God in whom we live and move and have our being. Amen. The Holy Spirit is the power behind the experience of Christianity. 2 Timothy 3.5 speaks of those who have a form of godliness, but no power. They're people who want religion, but they don't want their life to change. They still love their sin. They still crave their pleasure. They're unwilling to sacrifice. They're unwilling to surrender. They don't trust God enough to let go of what consumes their life. That kind of powerless faith does not transfer well to the next generation. Our kids, hear me now, church. Our kids need to see miracles. Our children and grandchildren need to see us on our knees praying for healing. They need to see us asking for provision, interceding for lost loved ones and crying out to God. They need to see God put to the test so He can show Himself mighty on our behalf. And that kind of power and that kind of true dependence comes only in the realm of the Holy Ghost. And that kind of power and that kind of dependence comes only in in the power and in the presence of the Spirit of God. And that's the power, that's the faith that transfers well to the next generation. We need to make known all three members of the Trinity. And number four, we must let our children experience God. Not just modify their behavior. I'm afraid that as first generation Christians, we're often, oh, and I confess this as a parent, we're often overly concerned with how we're perceived by other believers and other people. I'm afraid that among the requirements of the Christian parent, endeavoring to pass the baton of faith to the next generation is to be able to let their children fail. In order to, be, in order to pass on the baton of faith, you must be willing to let your children fail. Many see their role as parents is to spare their kids from all pain and hardship. They hover over their children ready to swoop in and save them from all adversity, any injustice, all forms of bullying, bad grades, or lack of playing time. Our kids don't need God. They've got us. I believe we need to become good at allowing our kids to make age-appropriate decisions. In turn, those become life's teachable moments. Now, now heavy on the term age-appropriate, I would not let a four-year-old make the decision as to whether or not he goes to bed. 
but I would let him decide what pajamas he wants to wear. I would not make a child... Now here's where I'll uh, score some points with uh, no one, ever. (laughs) I would not make a child wear a jacket on a chilly spring day if he doesn't want to. Let him figure out it's cold out there the next time, for the next time. Contrary to popular belief, the kid won't freeze to death, and you don't get a cold from being cold. These situations become teachable moments where they feel entrusted and empowered in appropriate and safe ways. They're allowed to fail. They're allowed even to hurt while still under your care as a parent. Instead of their first painful experience being when they're away at college or out in the workforce and, and, and as a young adult when, when everything is on a much larger scale. I think we also need to allow kids in on the struggles of the family. Again, in an age-appropriate fashion, praying together, sharing in the victories that we attain as God hears and God answers. It it can't just be something that happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago in your life. A young person can inherit that, but he can't experience it. There are people attending here today. Hear me now. I've offended some of you. I'm out for another swath here. (laughs) There are people attending here today that don't care how this building was built without a mortgage back in 1979. Now, I know that's offensive for some to hear, but it's true. It's just not their experience. It may be yours, it's not theirs. What happened two generations ago is a nice story. It's part of our history, and that's important. But faith must be what's happening now. Faith must be a continuing adventure. Faith has to be current and up-to-date. It's not a fable from the past. It's an ongoing experience. The ultimate goal of parenting is to raise good decision-makers. Everything we do as parents, should have that as the underlying motive to raise good decision-makers. Working to raise good decision-makers puts trust at the heart of the parent-child relationship. This, by the way, establishes the pattern for another relationship based on trust. And if we've established trust, then when they're teenagers, we're much more likely to have an open dialogue with the opportunity to teach from a position of experience and respect instead of control and power. We then have the privilege of helping our children discover God instead of cramming Him down their throat for 18 years only to have them reject Him as soon as they get out of the house. Better to experience God than to inherit Him. So let's back up to that 
uncooperative 16-year-old that I mentioned earlier in the introduction, what do we do when he or she doesn't want to go to church anymore? Do we tell them what it was like when we were young? My parents had me in church every time the doors were open. I hated every minute of it. You're going to hate it too. (laughs) Or do we express the reality? Now, Now hang with me here, okay? Hang with me. Or do we express the reality of our child moving toward adulthood while also explaining the benefits of living in harmony with what is important to the fabric and the values of this family as determined by the parents? So you might say something like, you know, you're 16, you don't want to go to church anymore? Well, we go to church on on Sunday morning. You're 16 now. You're, you're too big to drag by the collar. But being 16, I assume that you're going to want to get a driver's license. I assume that you're going to want to use my car. Just know that these things can only happen with my consent. <laughs> I'm much more likely to grant my consent to a child who operates within the parameters and in harmony with the values of our family. And then he or she has a choice. But ultimately, we cannot cannot force him or her to experience God. We can modify their behavior, and that makes us feel better. But ultimately, they have to make the decision. And that decision will be rooted in their experience. Therefore, I maintain it's better for them to be allowed to fail within the controlled confines of the home. If they don't have an opportunity to fail now, they will fail later when they're away at college or out on their own in the workplace, and there the stakes are much higher. It's not easy. It's one thing to experience faith ourselves. It's another altogether to pass it on to someone else. We must get better at that. The first generation experiences faith. The second generation inherits faith. To the third generation, faith becomes a convenience. And by the time you're four deep, faith is a nuisance. So how do we effectively pass on the baton of faith to the next generation? Let me give you those four thoughts again. Number one, make sure our faith is more than emotional. Because remember, emotion doesn't always transfer well. Number two, make sure we convey the why and not just the what. Number three, make known all three persons of the Trinity. And number four, we must let our children, we must let the next generation experience God. Parenting is a challenge. I'm much better now that my kids are all grown. (laughs) 
But it's more than just parenting. It's also as, as people of the church and people of God. We want to pass on faith to the next generation. But I'm thinking about someone else here today. Maybe you're here today and you've never experienced God. Now, I don't know what that means for you. Maybe, maybe you grew up in a Christian home and, yeah, you inherited faith. You know the drill. You know all the Christian lingo. You know where to find the books and the Bible and all of that. That doesn't mean you've experienced God. Maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian home and you've never experienced God. You're just here today. You see, my, my heart, and my desire, and the heart and desire of many people here is that no one would leave this place without having experienced God. It's an amazing thing. It transforms your life. There's these cliches that uh, I guess if you just inherit faith, they, that's what they are. They're, they're cliches. You know, I, I saw the light. I once was lost, but now I'm found. But I tell you what, those cliches express it well. I once was lost, now I'm found. There was a day back in 1983 when I gave my life to Jesus. And I wasn't in a, a desperate time. I wasn't in the midst of a crisis. I wasn't at the bottom. I just somehow saw that without Jesus, I was lost. And from that moment on, God became more and more real to me. And the more I've searched the scriptures, the more I've looked into the questions, the more it makes sense. I love that about Christianity. I love the fact that I don't have to take it by blind faith. There's evidence and reason. It makes perfect sense. And so I want to offer that to you today. Because I don't want you to leave here without knowing Jesus. I just want to offer to you Jesus. I wish I could give it to you like that. But the Bible calls it a gift. The Bible says we're saved by grace, which is God's part. Through faith, that's our part. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, it says. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift. A gift is different than a wage. A wage is something you earn. So in another place, the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. When it comes to sin, you get what you deserve. You get what you've earned. The wages of sin is death. When it comes to salvation, it's a gift from God. How do you receive it? Bible says you receive it by faith. What's faith? Faith is actively depending on God. So if someone were to ask you, why do you think you're going to heaven? That answer is very significant because if you say, you know, I'm a, 
I'm a good person. My good deeds have outweighed my bad deeds. Therefore, I'm going to heaven. Well, see, that doesn't speak of a gift. It speaks of a wage. You're saying you earned heaven. The Bible says you can't earn heaven. The Bible says that all fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And God's nature is incompatible with sin. That's why Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. So how do we get right with God? The Bible says we get right with God by faith. We put our hope and our trust in Him. The Bible speaks of a righteousness that comes by faith. And when you experience that, it changes you from the inside out. It changes you from the inside out. See, some people want the religion. I want to, I want to appease my conscience, but I don't want my life to change. See, you haven't really surrendered. You haven't really given them anything. It takes a brokenness, a surrender to receive God. See, not everybody's a child of God. To as many as receive him, he gives the power to become a child of God. If you're not a child of God today, I want to make that opportunity available to you. Would everyone, just for the next few minutes, just bow your heads. That just gives people around you privacy. If you're a born-again believer, I would ask right now that you would pray. That you would pray that strongholds would be broken in this next 60 seconds. That the enemy would have to flee. The presence of God would be so thick in this place that the enemy would have to flee. And if you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. Maybe you've known religion. Maybe you've come to church. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. Maybe you inherited faith, but you've never experienced faith. I want to make that opportunity available to you today. I'd like you to slip up your hand. By slipping up your hand, you're not joining the church. You're just saying, Tom, I need to experience Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I want to give him my life. I want to surrender my life to him that my sins might be forgiven. And I might be declared righteous in the name of Jesus because of the the price that he paid for me on Calvary's cross. If that's you today, I'd like you to slip up your hand. I see that hand. God bless you. Over here on my right, thank you. Someone else today, I see that hand.